Uh, whenever a preacher starts preaching in 1 Samuel, you always wait for the day that you finally reach the big passage on David and Goliath. Today is the faithful day. Uh, this is, it's not just a great biblical story. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the greatest stories ever told. That's why everybody, no matter how limited their knowledge of the Bible may be, everybody knows about the story of David and Goliath. And uh, it, most often it's taken as a great story about courage against impossible odds, about how uh, almost every interpretation, both secular and religious, makes this out to be the courage to be great. But it's actually not about that at all. It's actually about something very different. It's about the courage to be small. And so if you would please stand, or no, don't stand. <laughs> don't stand. This is a very long reading. Some of these narrative stories are just big, long stories. We can't, you can't really break them up. And so I'm going to read uh, all of chapter 17. Please remain seated, but let's, uh, let's uh, pay close attention to the reading of God's Word. Uh, this is 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle... And they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Sukkot and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain of the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a full coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went out before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their, of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul 
Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went. And as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. Now all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. But Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. Yet David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if it rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed, with, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. And so David put them off and then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistines. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when, he, when the Philistines looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, 
who come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw that the champion was dead and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but his armor he put in his tent. And as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... We thank you for this amazing story, Lord, one of the best stories ever written, the story, it is a story of courage against insurmountable odds, Lord, but it's a story so much better than that, Father, I pray that you would help us to see uh, I pray that you would help us to see, Lord, our own, our own weakness, our own doubt but that you love us in that and that you know us and that you care for us enough that you came and won the victory for us, Lord. So help us to see that uh, and and just bask in that beauty and light this morning as we look and see the face of Jesus in this text. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, that's a long... That was the longest reading we've ever done, I think. Uh, you know, I, this is the classic watershed passage when talking about uh, that people use to, dis, to, to, to use an example of whether or not your theology is basically about Jesus or basically about you. 
if your theology is basically about what we have to do to, for God or what it is that God has already done for us. And we use this passage uh, as the litmus test and as the prime watershed example of those differences in theology so often uh, that when we actually come to the test, the preacher, I feel almost like the thunder's all stolen from the passage because most people know where we're going in this passage. Uh, but the thing is, I, I think, I tend to think that I would look at passages like that, some other isolated passages to, uh, uh, as the main culprits of what I'm going to call giant killer theology in the church, which is basically the belief or the theology that, that you can get anything, God will give you anything as long as you have enough faith and courage to go after it. But the reality is, uh, I wish it was isolated to just these few passages. The reality is that that idea is pervasive throughout the whole church. It is, it is so, uh, such a popular idea and it robs us of the beauty and the glory of what Jesus has done for us. It's everywhere. For example, I was cruising through the internet looking for sermon illustrations for this, pa- for this passage in particular. I came across, somebody had posted a video of one of the songs that we play often here at church, which is uh, a song called Surrounded. And the only lyrics in the song are, when I feel like I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by you. That's all the lyrics, the whole lyrics for all the song. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's biblical, it's super biblical. It's right out of Second Kings chapter 6, where Elisha, the prophet and his servant, uh, they, they're surrounded by the army of the Assyrians. And, and, and Elisha, in his faith, he realizes that the Assyrians are also surrounded by a ring of fiery horses and chariots and the army of the Lord, which is a, this beautiful picture of how God wins our battles. God is the strength and the power above and beyond any earthly power we could ever hope for. And so I'm watching this video, and it's very, very famous, very well-known worship leader from Australia is singing this song and starts out great. The song's great. And she says, you know, we are, you know, looking to uh, God has won our battles and we stand and we declare God's victory over our battles. And then she says, and we stand and declare healing. And then she says, if you have cancer in your body this morning, I declare that you are free, you are healed, you are well Hallelujah, every pain in your body gone in the mighty name of Jesus and my heart just sank into my stomach. Not because I don't believe that God can heal someone with cancer. I do believe that he can do that. But I happen to know from experience and the reality of life that most of the time he chooses not to. And it's not because they don't pray It's not because they don't have a lot of faith. And it's not because God can't. It's because in his wisdom and his power, he often chooses not to. And when we tell people otherwise, we set them up to start with not only a crisis of health, but add to that a crisis of faith. When they have to wonder, well, why didn't God heal me? Did I not have enough faith? Was it, you know, does God not love me? Do I not belong to God? We add crisis upon crisis to the life of people when we throw that kind of theology out. Now, what am I, what am I, what, what what does this have to do with our passage today? What was she doing? What was she advocating for? She was advocating for giant killer theology. 
She was saying, if your faith is enough, if you are courageous enough, if you believe in God enough, God will absolutely heal you. And that, I, that is pervasive throughout the church, this understanding that if we are courageous enough, if we are brave enough, if we are powerful enough, if we are sanctified enough, God will give us whatever it is that we ask of Him. And so it's all about your faith, it's all about your strength, it's all about your power. But the reality of life is, we all know that no matter how strong you may be, eventually comes the day when something stronger comes along that you're faced with. A battle that is beyond your capability to courageously run through. Uh, And even if you lived a completely charmed life, no one is stronger than death. I don't see anyone praying for immortality in victory. I don't see anyone claiming immortality in victory. Uh, And here's the thing, though. This the reality of this passage, the reality of this story of David and Goliath is so much better than just go, that you are a giant killer that can tap into the power of God to kill and destroy and overcome any giant in your life. It's not really so much about how strong you are. It's really not about how strong your faith is or needs to be as much as it is how strong the person is who our faith is in. And that's what it's really all about. It's not so much about killing our giants. It's about the fact that God has killed the giant for us. So the big idea of this passage is is really this, that no matter how strong you are, death is stronger. But Jesus is stronger than death. And he has set you free. That no matter how strong you are, Death is stronger, but Jesus is stronger than death and he has set you free. Let's look at that one part at a time. Uh, No matter how strong you are, death is stronger. I have, one of my favorite sayings is from a pastor uh, in a sermon I heard, he said, it doesn't take much to make the main thing the main thing. And what he meant by that is, Uh, It's real easy for us to distract ourselves with all sorts of silly ideas and religious notions, but but it only takes one serious event to shake us out of that and and to help us face the reality of our situation. It only takes one visit to the oncologist. It only takes one um, awful car accident. It only takes one major thing to make the main thing the main thing again when we realize how desperate we are in need of God's power and of God's salvation in our lives. And with that in mind, listen to this. The narrator is here making the main thing the main thing. Listen to what he says about Goliath. In chapters, uh, this is verses 4 through 7. He says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. 
what's his point? His point is that however, really, you slice it, uh, he's trying, the narrator is presenting Goliath as a completely unbeatable, invincible foe for the Israelites in their own power. He has, uh, it says he's, it, the, the Hebrew text says he's six cubits in a span, which roughly works out to nine feet, six inches tall. And a lot of people say, okay, well, there's, he was a giant, giantism, blah, blah, blah. The older texts actually say four cubits in a span, and sometimes people use that to disparage the text. They go, see, he was only four cubits in a span, which was, actually, would have sort of been six feet nine inches tall. Uh, and I'm, you know, really, what's the difference? When you're, an, when you're a, an average Hebrew Israelite and you're five foot three, and you're facing a guy who's six foot nine with a hundred pounds of body armor and an 18 pound spear, the difference is not that big a deal. So however you slice it, However tall he might have actually been, the big idea that the, the author is trying to get out is that he, his appearance was absolutely unbeatable. Uh, and the keen Hebrew reader, the Hebrew reader would have thought back on the history of Saul. The people elected Saul because they wanted a king who could go out and fight their battles. Saul was the strongest, biggest, tallest, most kingly guy they had. And so they put him out front as king, and yet here he is, Saul has run into something that he cannot go out and battle against and win. And that's the point. That's the main point the author's trying to bring across, that eventually, one way or another, no matter how strong you are, you will run across something that's stronger than you. And what do you do when that happens? And this is where the giant killer theology breaks down. If you ascribe a giant killer theology and you tell yourself, I just need some more faith, I just need some more courage, I just need some more effort, I just need some more self-esteem, I just need to pray more, I just need to do more, I just need to this or that to get what I want God to give me, the victory in this particular thing, it starts to break down. Because giant killer theology says that you can always win what you want if you have enough faith. Keyword, you. <laughs> but reality and experience, we all know that eventually Goliath always shows up and puts a stop to that game. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's just a lot of different things. Maybe your reality, maybe, maybe you have been diagnosed with cancer and you've prayed day and night and it's not remitting, or you have a loved one who's suffering from cancer, and they pray day and night with as much faith as they can muster, and it doesn't remit. Uh, Maybe your business is failing. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Maybe you're, oh, so worried about your kids. Maybe you're struggling with depression. Maybe you're struggling with homelessness or some besetting sin. Uh, at some point, everyone hits a wall where our power is not enough. And if giant killer theology is true, that's a problem because it says that we're not enough. 
But the reality is we can. I can give you a list a mile long of great Christians who were slain by their giants. Starting really with the Apostle Paul with a thorn in the flesh that never went away so that he would not be conceited, he says. Probably not a medical issue. Thomas Aquinas died at 48 of brain trauma. It took three months for him to die. Martin Luther constantly struggled with depression. So did Charles Spurgeon. These guys had real problems in the midst of their faith in Jesus. And at the main point, listen, at the main point of the story is about how you can defeat anything with enough faith and courage, then Christianity is really a shell game. It's a crapshoot. Maybe you'll get it, maybe not. And worse, it makes it primarily all about us. Do we have enough faith? Do we have enough courage to face whatever may come? And we all know that eventually, somewhere down the line, Goliath shows up. But the reality is that Christianity isn't like that. Christianity is so much better. Christianity isn't about how strong we are, but it's about, the second point, how strong Jesus is. That no matter how strong we are, death is stronger, but Jesus is stronger than death. Now look, there's two main ways to approach the Bible in general or any biblical text. And that's to to approach it by saying this is basically about us and what we're supposed to do for God or to read the story as as stories about what it is that God has done for us. Uh, And there's three, before we get into, before I tell you what, you know, the main gist of this story is, I'm going to give you three quick foundations, theological foundations for understanding what this story is all about. Real quick. First one is that Jesus himself says that all the stories in the Old Testament are primarily about him. He says it all over the place. He says it in Luke 24. He says it in John chapter 5. He's constantly telling people that the stories of the Old Testament were primarily stories that were talking about him. How? The second foundation for understanding what this is all about is that the Old Testament teaches about who Jesus is, not just through prophecy, not just through uh, forecasting things that Jesus would do and who he was, but through something we call typology, where God has played out on the stage of history the great events of salvation, things that Jesus would do in the future for us to see and understand who Jesus was and what he's doing for us. And the third, the third foundation for understanding this is to understand a little bit about the covenants and how covenants work throughout the Old Testament. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was our covenant representative, meaning that he was either going to win or fail and either win for us eternal life or win for us sin and misery as our champion. If he had honored God and kept the commandments and expelled the snake from the garden as our champion, he would have won eternal life for everyone. That's what Paul talks about and and breaks down in Romans chapter 5. And then he goes on to say, Paul also says that Jesus is also a champion 
that what Adam failed to do, Christ, the last Adam, is our champion. He wins. He saved everyone because of what Jesus has done for us. He keeps the law. He defeats Satan. He defeats sin and death on the cross. And because of that, as our champion, facing those great enemies, he has won for us salvation. So what is this story really all about? A couple of clues within the story itself that tell us what it's all about. First, that if Goliath is portrayed as this invincible power, David is portrayed as weak and even despised. He's despised by his brothers. Uh, he's, he's counted as weak and inconsequential and insignificant by his father, also by Saul. When he comes out before Goliath, Goliath it, it considers, it thinks it's a big joke because he is absolutely we, the appearance of David is, 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 is the appearance of weakness. Uh, the second thing is that David understands this, this is really ultimately about God's glory, about God's honor. Listen to what David says to Goliath, his motivation for coming out to battle. He says first that, he says that there he's going to win the victory so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. As a, this would be a show of power that there is one true God who would beat and destroy and discount all the false gods of the Philistines. And second, he says that this assembly, both Philistines and Israelites, believers and unbelievers, might uh, know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, but the battle is the Lord's. In other words, that God has promised to save him by himself personally. His people. And my favorite part, as much as I love the, the, the bravado of the fight scenes and who is this uncircumcised Philistine and David's, David's, uh, you know, David's chopping it up with Goliath right before he goes in to kill him, which is amazing. Really, this is my favorite thing that David says is this. It's, it's when he goes before Saul, verse 32. And Saul said David said to Saul he said let no man's heart fail because of him your servant will go and fight with this Philistine there's David speaking to the king and and you can hear it in his voice the gentleness the respect he's not talking just to Saul but he's talking to everyone he's saying to Saul face to face he's saying Saul don't be afraid I'll go in your place and I'll fight this battle for you. And that is in this passage to me, that's the clearest part where you hear Jesus' voice breaking through and speaking to all of us. When we're all up against the wall, when we've hit our Goliath, when we don't have enough faith, when we aren't able to pull ourselves up, when we can't get what we think we so desperately want, when we're so afraid... Jesus says to us, bottom line, don't be afraid. I'll go and stand in for you. I will win the victory. I will win the battle for you. And the big battle that Jesus has won for us is what? What's the biggest problem we face? I asked that in a Bible study once. I said, what is the biggest problem faced by mankind? I've got all kinds of answers. Global warming, overpopulation, uh, drought. Uh, everybody had all these different answers. Not one person said death. 
That should tell you something. It should tell you how distracted we are by all these little different things in the world, all these little battles in front of us distract us from the reality of the one great problem that every single one of us face, that that nothing that we do will be able to overcome no matter how or what we do. And what Jesus has done is the biggest battle of all time. He has won and the victory over death for us He has defeated sin and death as our champion. He defeated sin and death by the offensive measure, the attack of the cross. And through that, he has rescued all of his people and brought life and salvation and freedom to all of his people. Now, do you see it? I didn't want to just come out and say, you're not David, Jesus is David. We are the Israelites. We're hiding out in our tents. We're afraid. We're up against something that, things that are insurmountable that we cannot overcome. Most importantly, the looming fear of death in our lives and how desperately we need Jesus to win that victory for us. That's what this story is about. This is typology in the greatest sense. This is God playing out these great themes of salvation of what Jesus is and what he would do for us on this stage of human history so that we would have a clear picture of it. We don't just read things, Jesus would do this, Jesus would do that. We have these epic stories. Jesus is our champion. He runs into battle for us. He is so consumed with zeal for the glory of God that he's absolutely free. He has so much faith. He knows for a fact that God will render him victorious, that he will overcome these massive giants, and that in so doing, he will share his victory with all of God's people and bring to them life and peace. That is what all of this is really primarily all about. Jesus is our champion. Jesus has won for us the big battle so that we place, when we place our faith in him, when we exercise our faith in Christ, it's not a crapshoot. It is not a shell game. It is something that works every single time because it's not about the strength of our faith. It's about the strength of the one who we put our faith in. Jesus says, John chapter 5, he says that whoever hears my word and believes faith has, right then and there, eternal life. He does not come under judgment. We will not be judged by God because Jesus was judged for us on the cross, but has passed from death to life. When we put our faith in Christ, we begin in the beauty and reality of eternal life right there, and it's guaranteed. Last point, he has set us free. And that, look, that, that is the foundation of our lives. That is the ultimate reality for everything we do, the lens through we look at everything else. You know, we talked about hidden treasure Last week, the kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure. What that says to us is because Jesus has won eternal life for us, because our future is absolutely certain in the heavenly realms, because he has promised us, even if we don't receive healing in this life, we will receive a full and complete healing into a body more powerful and wonderful than we could ever imagine, stored up for us in heaven that cannot be taken away for us. We have this massive 
hidden treasure that's worth more than anything on earth stored up for us so that no matter what happens to us in the here and now, no matter what God allows to befall us, no matter what obstacles we run against, no matter what besetting sins we may suffer from, none of it is the bottom line. None of it is the final word of who we are because of what Jesus has done for us and given us in the gospel. And that's the lens then that we could look through everything else at so that when we come across the little giants in our lives, the little battles of day-to-day life, we know that Jesus has won the giant battle. If he's gained victory for us over sin and death, how much more will he not share his life with us in the here and now? When we look at, when we, it means we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of hardship or suffering when it comes. We don't command God to take away our suffering and tell Him what we will and will not do, what He can and cannot deliver to us. But instead of being terrified of the hardship or suffering, if we already have eternal life stored up, we don't have to be terrified of death. Because for the Christian, it is birth into life. If we already have a sure and certain future in the heavens, we don't have to freak out about our future here on earth. We can know that God is protecting us, guiding us, and strengthening us through whatever it is He allows to come in into our lives. If we lose our job, if our business fails, if we're worried about our kids, there's any number of ways that life might turn out not the way we expect, but God promises care for us in the midst and suffering of this life so we don't have to be afraid. And if we have a secure relationship with God through Christ, we don't have to fear about our relationships. We don't have to worry about so much about being hurt or being abandoned or being betrayed because we know Jesus will stand with us. Not that those things don't hurt, but they're not the ultimate end of our lives. It's not the end of the world. The end of the world is glory and life and peace. And if we already have the the approval of God through Christ, then we don't have to be afraid of people. We don't have to run around trying to impress other people to feel safe and secure, which really frees us up. Frees us up to, instead of being worried about our glory, it frees us up to be concerned primarily with the glory of God in everything we do. And that, that is what God wants for us because that is what brings ultimately freedom in our lives. The more concerned we are, the less concerned we are with our, with, with our own glory and the more concerned we are with the glory of God, we can walk into anything and go anywhere And we can know that God is with us. We can do anything that God calls us to because we know we are secure in His salvation and we know that we can trust Him to win the biggest battle of our lives. We know that He's with us in all the little ones. It takes the edge off and we can walk with Him securely knowing that He's with us. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, there are so many things that we can come across in life that feel insurmountable. No, but we thank you. You've let us know that the biggest battle we will ever face has been won. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people that would trust you in everyday things of life, Lord. As we know through the cross, we have no doubt. We have no, we can never again entertain the possibility that you might not be good or that you might not be just because you suffered to win our salvation for us. And so because of that, Lord, we know we can trust you. So when we come across these little battles in life, when we come across the hardships and suffering in life, Lord, help us to sit quietly with you and to trust you through it. And Lord, we pray ultimately that you would help us to seek not our own glory, but to glorify you in everything so that we might be free as we await that day when you come and take us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.